I have a message for you that uh, grows out of a uh, seminar that I'm doing at the Sovereign Grace Pastors Conference in two weeks. And Larry told me, Larry likes to give orders, if you haven't noticed that yet. He, he likes to give people assignments. I shouldn't say orders, assignments. And so he assigned to me to develop the seminar into a sermon that I could share with you. So that's what you get today. Uh, so if you would open your Bibles to Second Samuel chapter 2. Second Samuel chapter 2. On page 306 in my Bible. <laughs> Not that that's a lot of help. The topic today is loyalty. And I hope that by the time we're done, all of us think differently about this crucial word. We jump into the middle of a story. David has become the king of Judah, just one of the tribes of Israel. Saul, the king of Israel, is dead, as is his son and heir, Jonathan. And David is in the process of consolidating the tribe and the authority as king that he's been given by God. 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron, and the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now the writer is recording history, and here's the next thing he wants us to know about David as he's been established as king in Hebron. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you, because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Let's stop right now and pray. Lord, these are eternal words fixed in heaven, but our hearts are ignorant and can be hard so we pray that you would give us, by your Holy Spirit, understanding of what you intend us to know about yourself and your ways with us and your will for us. 
We pray that you would do this in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. The men of Jabesh Gilead, it says, showed loyalty to their dead king, Saul. And David wanted to do good to them for it. You might be surprised to learn that the word loyalty is used only four times in the English Standard Version translation of the Bible. Three of them are in 2 Samuel. So it would not seem to be very important, but the idea of loyalty is not at all foreign to the Bible. In fact, it is fundamental to the very nature of God and fundamental to how God relates to us and fundamental to how we are to relate to God and to each other. But we don't talk about loyalty anymore. The very concept rattles certain people. I had two separate conversations with two members of the millennial generation, and I was telling them about developing material on this topic, and they both, independent of each other, warned me, millennials get really suspicious when anyone talks about loyalty. And when it does come into our minds, the idea is often, in a very secular sense, a sense of obligation. So, when newly inaugurated President Trump met with his FBI director this past February, he told him, I need loyalty. I expect loyalty. And of course, this was widely interpreted as the president telling a subordinate that his obligation should be first to the president and then to the Constitution of the United States. Loyalty that is built around obligations imposed from an authority is not the loyalty that David had in mind in this text, nor is the loyalty that the men of Jabesh Gilead showed. David wanted to reward them for showing loyalty to their dead king, Saul, a king who could no longer reward their loyalty. So their act of burying Saul's corpse was not out of obligation. The men of Jabesh Gilead had much to thank Saul for. When Saul was alive, they had very good reason to be loyal. Shortly after Saul became king, the first king over all of Israel, he's back home doing his thing, doesn't, I think, know much about what it means to be king. And the Ammonites lay siege to the city of Jabesh Gilead. And the men of the city realize, we're toast, it's over. So they offer terms of peace. They say, we'd like to We'd like to surrender. What are the terms you offer? And so the Ammonite king offered these terms, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. It appears 
that their choice was utter annihilation or enslavement as one-eyed men to the Ammonites. Word got to Saul, and he raised an army which routed the Ammonites. And for this, the men of Jabesh-Gilead showed Saul permanent loyalty, which extended beyond Saul's death, showing that it was more than a political calculation. It was more than about, what can I get out of this? When they buried Saul, they risked their own lives. The Philistines had discovered Saul's body on the field of battle. They cut off his head so they could use his head as a traveling ornament in their different cities to celebrate the great victory. And they hung his body on the wall of one of their cities. So it took great courage It took great courage to obtain the body from an enemy that had just slaughtered your army. But that is what they did. When they did this and David heard about it, he wanted to commend this act of loyalty. And so he invokes the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness on them. Then he proceeds to invite them into his newly established kingdom. That's what's going on uh, in verse uh, 7. Commentators note that David's blessing was more than a way of showing honor. This was a shrewd political move. These were some of the most loyal subjects of Saul. Ronald Youngblood writes that this steadfast love and faithfulness, that language that David uses is a common part, it's part and parcel, quoting Youngblood, part and parcel of all genuine covenant relationships. And David stresses his eagerness to transfer the Jabesites' covenant loyalty to himself. So he's saying, you've been loyal to Saul. I'm going to show kindness to you with the implication, I'd love you to be loyal to me. Now, this is undoubtedly true. But it's also only part of the picture. This has to be more than politics. It has to be more than David trying to win over those loyal to Saul to himself. Just prior to this passage, David makes public lament over the death of the king. The king who had spent years in a jealous quest to kill David. And twice David had the opportunity to kill his hunter, and twice he refused. And why did he refuse? Why not kill the man seeking to kill you? Well, in David's words, I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. In other words, David would not kill the man the Lord had installed as David's king. David was loyal to Saul. So it seems to me that there's more than political maneuvering going on here in the opening paragraphs of 2 Samuel chapter 2. David is blessing those who showed this loyalty toward their king just as David had at great risk to his life, shown loyalty to their king. This is a part 
of David's character. He was loyal. In the eyes of those around him, he was loyal to a fault. We can't be certain, but it is very likely that David learned this in his own family. When David commended the men of Jabesh-Gilead for showing loyalty, he was using the exact same Hebrew words that Naomi used toward her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, earlier as recorded in the book of Ruth, which I understand you've recently studied together, so you know the story. Let me quote from chapter 1 of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 8. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go Turn each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with the me. Now, these words, deal kindly, are the identical words that David spoke describing the men of Jabesh Gilead. But in first, uh, Second Samuel chapter 2, it's translated, showed loyalty. Dealt kindly, showed loyalty. After Naomi's husband and her two sons had died, the husbands of Orpah and Ruth, the young women had no reason to be loyal to Naomi. They had no obligations to her. The elderly widow had no other sons to offer them as husbands. Yet they remained loyal. And Naomi, in returning to her homeland, desires to release them from any obligations they may have felt. And Orpah took the release, understandably took the release. You would have advised her to take the release. But Ruth refused. Ruth refused at great cost. She stayed with her mother-in-law as she returned to her mother-in-law's homeland. Her husband's dead. Her father-in-law's dead. She has no prospects of marriage, especially in Israel, where she would be treated as a stranger, a foreigner. Despite the cost, Ruth continued to deal kindly to show loyalty toward her mother-in-law. Her character is such that when she arrives in Israel, she's noticed by a good man who notices this is a woman of extraordinary Loyalty, extraordinary character, and he proposes marriage, and they marry. And this is where the connection to David comes in. With Boaz, Ruth bears a son they name Obed. Obed bears a son named Jesse, who becomes the father of the great king David. So this is what I wonder. Was this part of the family history that David learned sitting on his father's knee? How his great-grandmother was loyal to Naomi, and it led to her marriage to her great-grandfather. The words translated loyalty in the David account and kindly in Ruth come from the Hebrew word hased. It's a good word to know. It's not exactly translatable into English, but I want to give you an idea because it is a hugely important biblical word. 
Commenting on Ruth 1.8, the scholar Leon Morris writes, the key word here is hesed, often translated loving kindness. It is a word which on occasion means something very like loyalty and on occasion something like love. Commenting on the same text in Ruth, the Old Testament scholar Robert Hubbard writes that this key biblical word, hesed, connotes loyalty, reliability, kindness, compassion. It's a huge word. And it's a huge word because standing behind this word is God. God describes himself with this very term. Exodus 34, he proclaims himself to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's that word, hesed. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The God of Israel, the God who sent Jesus Christ into the world, acts toward us with kindness, with reliable kindness. He acts with steadfast love. So let's understand the word loyalty. Let's adopt a different definition so that we can get a better handle on what it's about. Uh, Let's use the words reliable Kindness. Reliable kindness. This is the love that God showed His people Israel. He showed hesed to them even when they violated His just and good commands. He may have disciplined them through hardship and exile, but He never stopped loving them. He made them a great nation and gave them a fertile land, but they tended to squander His gifts until they became just another province in the vast Roman Empire, and a small province at that. And they were reduced to being able to worship only by Roman permission. Into this world, to this broken people, God sent His Son. His only Son. Assigning Him to be born of a human mother. This made him a descendant of the great king David. Made him a descendant of Ruth. Why did he come? What motivated God the Father to send God the Son into the world, taking on human flesh? It was loyalty. The New Testament word that most closely fits the idea behind hesed is one that we translate as love in the New Testament. Agape. Agape is a love that comes with no strings attached. A love that you can give, but cannot be required. It's a love that does not come under obligation. It's not a reciprocating love. It's a love that is given freely, kindly, graciously. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. 
When Jesus came into the world, there was nothing in this world that would obligate him to act as he did. None of us deserved his loyalty. None of us. None of us deserved his pity. Our arrogant rebellions against his good and holy and just laws only deserve his holy hell. He showed us loyalty when we were disloyal to him. So Paul writes in Romans, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. Two verses later, Paul describes the people for whom Jesus died as his enemies. This is love, the Apostle John writes. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, a sacrifice to appease the Father's wrath for our sins. So loyalty... Costly, sacrificial, reliably consistent love is an expression of the very nature of God. He showed steadfast love to Israel by preserving them as a people despite their constant disloyalty toward Him. He loved us by sending Jesus Christ to teach us, to live for us, to die for us, to care for us, and teach us to this very day, this very moment, in this very place. So, we have arrived at the midpoint of this sermon, and now we need to turn a corner. And so I want to pose a question. In light of this love, this loyal love, how are we to treat each other? God's loyalty toward us in Jesus should evoke a reciprocating love toward Him. That, that just makes sense. We love God because He loved us. But what does it mean for our relationship to other Christians? Does God expect us to be loyal to one another? What should that loyalty look like? Especially as you think about the people sitting in this room. I believe that loyalty to one another as members of a particular local church is sorely lacking in the evangelical church in America. I'm not going to tell you why time doesn't permit. But I am deeply concerned about the state of the evangelical church in America. That's my tribe. And I believe that if we do not examine our churches and our lives in light of this loyalty, we will fail to meet the challenges of our day. And I fear that many of our churches will apostatize or just wither away and die. So this is a really big deal. So I want to make a few statements about this loyalty that we see in Ruth and David and Jesus by asking this question, how does the Bible call us to shape our lives in light of this call to loyalty to one another? 
And before I make these points, let me repeat. I'm defining loyalty as consistent hased. Reliability motivated by kindness. I'm defining loyalty as agape, consistent love that sacrifices for the good of another with no expectation of a return. So now I think we're ready to explore the call that the apostle makes in 1 John, beloved, let us love one another. What should that love look like? How does loyalty to each other inform this love? And the first thing I want you to get from this that I think is critical, number one, loyalty can only be given. It cannot be enforced. Now, if you don't get that, you're going to have problems. It's utterly crucial we get this. Whenever a church or a church leader binds people by insisting on loyalty, it actually kills loyalty. It's like deciding you're going to make a flower arrangement with the flowers in your garden, and so you get out a chainsaw to cut the flowers. Insisting on loyalty becomes authoritarian and oppressive. Loyalty as forced submission is no loyalty at all. Not in the sense that God shows us in the Bible. So we have to erase from our minds these secular, earthly ideas behind loyalty. Naomi actually encouraged Ruth to break off their relationship. Ruth chose to give loyalty despite her mother-in-law's release. God the Father sent God the Son into the world, but the Son was was not coerced. He came freely, willingly, out of loyalty to a people who at the time were his enemies. You can teach loyalty. You can celebrate loyalty as shown to us by God and as practiced by others, but you cannot require loyalty. Only God can command loyalty. And His command comes to us through His Son who proved His loyalty to us at the cost of His own life. So number one, loyalty can only be given. It cannot be enforced. But then number two, Loyalty means that you give up personal preference for the sake of others. Loyalty means that you give up personal preference for the sake of others, especially for the sake of members of your church. This is really hard for us Americans to get. Our country was founded on a document that stated that each individual had a right to the pursuit of his or her own personal happiness, however he or she might define it. Our society is largely formed around this right and the choices that come with it, especially consumer choices. You choose the best product based on price or quality or convenience or whatever your standard may be. And if that product no longer serves or someone down the street has a better product, you move on. 
No one questions that. But what happens when we bring that approach to church? What if we come to a church like a consumer? Well, I chose this church because I really like the pastor. The teaching here feeds me. The youth program is excellent. My friends are here. Oh, I love the music. Then what happens if the pastor retires or moves and his replacement is not as effective in your eyes? What happens if the youth leader moves on or your kids grow up and no longer need a youth ministry? What happens if your friends are no longer here? What if you don't feel compatible with the people or the music or the recreational preferences most people have? What if the church's organized ministries don't fit your preference? I have a passion for this, but they don't seem to be that into it. Consumer loyalty is loyalty to self. It is not the loyalty God has shown us. So how do you illustrate this? There's a woman who is a member of my church, but she participates in our church only one month out of the year. The other 11 months, she lives in a country in Africa, seeking to bring the gospel to a people who have no church in their city in a culture that is hostile to the gospel. I can't tell you her name. I can't tell you where she lives because in a wired age, it would draw unwanted attention to her and the mission she serves to her city. This past summer, Nancy and I spent an evening over dinner with her. And we asked her how she came to devote her life to this ministry. She said it first grew out of a desire to travel and to do something different. She was a school teacher, and there was an opportunity to serve for a year at a school in northern Iraq. So she took the assignment. Her motive at this point, she said, was all about her and her desires. After she came home, she resumed teaching in the U.S., but she also began looking at her life through the lens of Jesus' command to his church that we go make disciples of Jesus from all nations. And she sensed growing in her heart a calling from God to serve, not to fulfill a desire to travel, not to live an exciting life, but a calling to serve people who were in desperate need of the gospel, as all non-believers are, but who had no personal flesh and blood access to gospel witness. So she applied to an organization that's devoted to serving in this part of the world, and they accepted her, but they told her she must apply to individual mission teams in the countries where they served. So she began video conferencing with a team in her chosen country. And then she visited them for a week. And together they decided that this was where God had called her to serve. This summer, she has been committed to these people and this city for four years. She has no contract to fulfill. She can come back to the comfortable United States whenever she wants to. One point I asked her if she found her time there fulfilling. And that question was followed by a long pause. 
She said that sometimes her experience was very fulfilling. But, and I quote her, those mountaintops are few and far between. She explained, as a foreigner who's not fluent in the language, everything is difficult. Everything takes more time. She often feels very ineffective. The members of her small church speak three different languages, but not one of them all in common. So they rotate. Can you imagine? Oh, good, it's English week. She recalled with real joy one time when they were all worshiping in the nation's common tongue and there seemed to be such a harmony and unity of worship in the presence of God. One time. Four years. We asked her if she had future plans. She said that her mission partners had talked about possibly branching into another city, but she said that she would not leave unless everyone agreed that she should. And then she said this. Now, she had no idea I was thinking about this topic. This is what she said. I want to be loyal to my team. And then she stopped and she said, which is odd. Because I've only known them for four years. I was stunned to hear her say this. No one asked her for this loyalty. No one required it of her. It wasn't a part of the mission agency's contract. It was something she gave. A commitment to serve a particular people, and she used the word loyal to describe it. Now, let me ask you a question. What if here in the United States, we chose our local church based on a commitment to serve a particular people in a particular place with personal fulfillment as an optional extra? Not a fundamental requirement. What if church membership was defined by serving and not receiving? I think each of us start with me, okay? Each of us needs to ask ourselves the question, am I here as a consumer or am I here because God called me here to serve these particular people over time? Reliability takes place over time. You can't know someone's reliable until you see them in a lot of different situations and you say, He's reliable. Has God called me to be reliably kind to this particular people in this particular place? Maybe for the rest of my life. So loyalty means we lay down personal preferences. We look to God to direct us to serve. Number three, loyalty can be costly. Loyalty can be costly. This is, this is real stuff, folks, okay? This is like the live ammunition exercise. David risked his life to be loyal to Saul. 
His king had gone mad with jealousy, yet David refused to take matters into his own hands when providence had afforded him two chances to kill him. Everyone would have understood his actions as self-defense, but David refused. He would not, he said, be disloyal to the Lord's anointed. It doesn't mean he submitted to Saul's sin, but it did mean that he remained reliably kind at great risk to his own life. Ruth chose loyalty to Naomi at great personal cost. She chose to be a foreigner attached to an elderly, impoverished widow over her family home and her native people. If Ruth didn't marry in Israel, which was unlikely when she left Moab, when Naomi died, she would have been left destitute. Jesus chose to be loyal to us. It cost him something to leave his heavenly abode to live among us. Talk about cross-cultural ministry. He came to live among a people who largely hated him and mistreated him and eventually killed him. So are we different from David or Ruth or Jesus? Loyalty to your church and your brothers and sisters in your church will cost you. It will. We live in an age of slander This is the raw material of so much social media and now even respectable news outlets broadcast accusations of wrongdoing with little or no credible evidence. It's become the coin of the realm. If we are loyal to one another in an age of slander, we stand with each other when one of us is attacked even if our brother or sister is in the wrong. Did you hear that? Even if our brother or sister is in the wrong. The only time we separate from each other is when church discipline fails to result in repentance. Then we remain loyal. But our loyalty demands that we withhold fellowship. Otherwise, we must stand together and allow our own reputations to be tarnished with the brother or sister who's been harmed. Now listen, I'm not looking back at past experience when I urge you to examine your life in light of loyalty. I'm looking at the present. And I'm looking at the future. Disloyalty is a tool of the enemies of Christ. Satan divides us. He sets one against the other. We withdraw from each other out of self-preservation. Do you realize within my lifetime, and that ain't a lot, but within my lifetime, it is not at all unreasonable to expect that some of us, because we stand with Jesus, 
may lose our job, may lose academic opportunity, may lose membership in all kinds of organizations. Standing with Jesus may mean public abuse and shame. Will we be loyal to each other when one of us is mistreated? When one of our members suffers loss or is attacked, we must stand with him or her and give the personal and even financial support to make up for the loss they've endured for their witness. Consumer churches will not stand this test. Churches based on consumer choice have members who stay when what they get exceeds what they give. That's how we triangulate all of life in America today. And it is the opposite of how God is, how he treats us, and how he treats the world. Loyalty says, there's no limit on my giving other than the clear commands of God in Scripture because my first loyalty is to God. What I've said today is not new. I've tried to use a neglected word, the word loyalty, to get your attention could have done a message, we must love one another, but we can be dull hearing that word, love. So let me say this, we must be reliably kind to one another, even when, especially when our kindness costs us. This is the logic of the cross. This is Paul's reasoning in Philippians 2. Let me just read it to you. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's the foundation of loyalty. Count others more significant. Verse 4. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Others. That's the focus of loyalty. The interest of others. Verse 5. Have this mind or mindset, perspective among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the fruit of loyalty. So our foundation is others are more significant than me. Our focus is the interests of others. And the fruit of it is a sacrificial service because we can. Church, Jesus has been loyal to you and me. We must have the same mind. We must count others more significant than ourselves and not look out just for our own interests. This kind of love, this kind of loyalty must be a part of what defines Grace Church. 
if we are to be a church that gives faithful testimony to Jesus. It's not what you say on your website. It's not the activities you pursue. It's how we love one another with a reliable kindness, a faithfulness that's freely given out of compassion over time. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that your word encourages us and corrects us. And you have the ability through a sermon like this to do work in individual hearts in different ways. Some, Lord, I know you are commending because they have lived this way. Some may need to rethink how they approach fellowship, church membership. Whatever, Lord, I pray that everyone would be encouraged that the basis of your calling to us to be loyal is grounded in your loyalty to us. Even when we were your enemies, you loved us. How much now, how much more now, that we are joined to your Son. So we ask that you would work your word into our hearts and minds and into how we treat one another. In Jesus' name, amen.